0: Okay, perfect. It's on. Okay, let me just get my notes here in front of me. So today I'll be looking at the story of Gideon, um, but before I do that, I want to look at the context a little bit, because if we don't know the background, then s- so much of it doesn't make any sense. Um, it's kind of like starting a movie in the middle or a book on the fifth chapter. You you're left asking a whole lot of questions, like who are the Israelites? Why do they matter? Who is God and why would he punish Israel and not the other nations? Because they're doing pretty much the same thing. And why is this land so important? If it's so bad, there for the nation of Israel. Why can't they just go somewhere else? So, um, yeah, I'll be in Judges 6 for the most of it. I've got most of my scripture in my notes, so I might not take very much time to flip back and forth every time. Um, so to start off with, a key part of understanding scripture is understanding the genre that um, of what we're reading. The Bible has within its pages poetry, prophecy, law, historical narrative, proverbs, epistles, or letters. Um, I've chosen to preach on judges, which is a historical narrative, so it's a story. And a thing to remember about that is not everything in a historical, nar- historical narrative is recommended by God. Not everything that happens um, is a command. Like we'll see, uh, for example, Gideon has doubts. Or if you look at Samson, he, just, he doesn't have much self-control, or any of the other judges. Um, frequently there's faults, and those aren't commands, it's not condoned by God, there's wickedness done by these people, um, but the Bible records it accurately. Um, so I guess I'll start with a bit of a disclaimer as well, because I've chosen to preach on the story of Gideon, I'll be doing a fair bit of reading, because it's a long story, so uh, please bear with me. So for context, the theme in the book of Judges um, and the reason for the wickedness that takes place in it is found or summarized in its final verse. Um, In those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Um, But just to understand, I don't know, how they got to the point that they are in Judges, um, let's back it up to before Israel was a nation. If we would look at Genesis 17, We can see where God makes a covenant with a man named Abram. In verses eight and nine of uh, Genesis 17, God says, "I give you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger; all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God." And God said to Abraham, "As for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your descendants after you throughout their generations." This promise isn't fulfilled right there and then. It's not even fulfilled in Isaac's life lifetime or in Jacob's, or in Joseph's. Um, Actually, if you read Exodus 12, verse 40 and 41, it tells us, Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years, and it came to pass that at the end of the 430 years, on that very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So Israel stayed in Egypt 430 years to the day. And even then, they didn't just march into Canaan and take take possession of the land. Um, I believe I heard somewhere, is it's an 11-day march, actually, from Egypt through c- to Canaan. But because of their disobedience, which you can see in Numbers 13 and 14, uh, they sent in the spies into Canaan, and they saw the l- people of the land, they saw the giants and were afraid. And so they said they'd rather go back to, Isg- uh, back to Egypt. So as a punishment for the, their disobedience, they had to wander the desert for 40 years. An 11-day journey took 40 years. Um, So then, at last, we get to the story of Joshua. The people are finally obedient. God, um, he stops the Jordan for them. They can cross over on dry land. And then everything seems to finally be going right. They're finally obeying. Um, Besides (laughs) the disobedience of Achan and the, the subsequent defeat at Ai, Israel seems to finally actually be listening to God. Um, he knocks down the walls at Jericho and gives them victory there, and they have victory everywhere they go. Um, they, they win every battle, and they take over all the major cities. Then at the end of Joshua's life, in uh, Joshua 24, uh, verses 14 through 25, um, that one I'll read a little bit more slowly, actually, um, just, I guess, for reference sorry, verse 14 says, Now therefore, and the therefore here is in reference to what Joshua has said before this. He's talking about all that the Lord has done for Israel to this point, and it shows the goodness and the faithfulness of God up until this point. So he says to Israel, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods of your fathers sorry whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell but as for me and my house we will serve the Lord then the people answered far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods for it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery who did those great signs sorry and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. (coughs) uh, Therefore we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God, he is a jealous God, and he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you, after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them an ordinance in Shechem. So here, near the end of Joshua's life, he makes it very clear to Israel that God is faithful. He is faithful to fulfill his promises, whether that promise be for good and then blessing, or if that promise... Um, if that promises for their disobedience and the curse that they will receive, the discipline. Israel does make the right choice, but if we read in verse 31 of Joshua 24, we see the author foreshadow the beginning of a pattern of disobedience that continues through much of the Old Testament, but especially in the book of Judges. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. The way that's worded, it has kind of an ominous sound to it. It's, um, it pretty much says that they only serve the Lord as long as Joshua and the elders live. As soon as they don't have the right leadership anymore, um, then they go and do what's right in their own eyes and they f- they sin. They They start to worship idols. So if we turn to the book of, or chap- er, sorry, um, if so then if we go to chapter 1 in the book of Judges, we'll see that the conquest of Canaan isn't complete yet. Um, maybe slow down a little bit. Verse 1 says, or verse 1 of chapter 1 says, Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight th- against them? So God's led Israel into the Promised Land, and He's given them victories wherever they went during the life of Joshua. And the Israelites took over many key cities and strongholds, but there remained very much land to be conquered. Um, Joshua 13 mentions that. And Joshua is getting old, so God has Joshua divide up the land into inheritances and gives each each tribe an inheritance and the responsibility to drive out the Canaan Canaanites completely from that from their inheritance. Um, a summary I found of, Josh, uh, of Judges chapter 1 that I found helpful was, it um, goes like this. The first chapter of Judges seems to start off well. Israel asks the Lord who should go up, and it's Judah. Simeon helps Judah, and they go into battle, and they are, victor- they are victorious. And as the chapter progresses from south to north, which is the the pattern in the chapter, they start out with Judah in the south of Israel, and then they move upwards to off the top of my head, I forget, I think it's Manasseh, but they move upwards to the northern part of the, of K- the land they've been given. Um, and you just see increasingly a lack of faith from the Israelites. Um, at first, the, Canaan- the Canaanites are being defeated, and then you see a little bit further on, the Canaanites are living with the Israelites. And by the end of the chapter, you see that the Israelites are moving in and living with the Canaanites. And what the Lord has commanded to be a conquest has been turned into a cohabitation. Um, they're living together. In direct disobedience to what the Lord had commanded them, um, uh, as we re- as you read on, right actually in chapter one, there's it mentions Judah going up, but they could not. It says they conquered the mountains, but they could not defeat um, the the people in the valley because they had chariots of iron. Um, if you read on in the book of Judges you'll see that it doesn't matter what technology the enemies of the Lord have. It doesn't matter how many of them there are. The Lord is sovereign, and he's able to give victories to those who trust in him. So the problem is a lack of trust in Israel on Israel's part, not on um, not that they're completely unable to defeat these people. And then chapters 2 and 3 um, tell us of Israel's disobedience and God's punishment for it. He leaves the Canaanites... Um, chapter 2, verse 3 tells us, as thorns in their sides. Chapter 2, 22 says, he leaves them to test them. And chapter 3, verse 2 says, he left them to teach them war. So he's had he has a few purposes for this. So if we compare the instructions, or sorry, if we compare the instructions given for the conquest, in Deuteronomy 7, I'll just summarize them, with chapter 3 of Judges, we can see that Israel's fallen woefully short. Israel's told, you are to conquer them and utterly destroy them. You are to make no covenant with them, nor shall you make marriages with them, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you, and you will be destroyed suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them you shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, break down their wooden images, and burn their carved images with fire. So if you're in Judges, (coughs) sorry, chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, it says, Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives, and they gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. So, now if we move to, um, we've got a bit of a history. If we want to move to Joshua, between Joshua, um, where we are right now and Joshua, or, er, sorry, Joshua, ki- uh, Gideon, between where we are now in verse chapter three to Gideon, there's four judges. There's Othniel, the son-in-law of Caleb. He seems to be a faithful man. There doesn't really talk much about him except that he does what he's supposed to do and he gets the job done. Uh, then there's Ehud, a left-handed man who assassinates Eglon, the king, who is um, uh, the king that God has delivered Israel. In, uh, the king that rules a nation that Israel has been delivered in, into their hand or however I should be wording out. Um, and then there's Shamgar, a foreigner who kills 600 with, the, with an ox goad. Um, there's really just about a verse on him right there at the end of the story of Ehud, and then there's a little bit more about him uh, mentioned by Deborah. And then there's also Deborah. She's the one who gave Barak the command from God to lead Israel's men into battle. And each time, the Lord redeems Israel. And each time, Israel's obedience lasts as long as the judges live. Um, But repeatedly, each judge's story ends with a very similar statement, saying pretty much um, as soon as the judge was dead, Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. It's it's a a sad pattern. It's a cycle, actually, that can be um, summarized. Israel's Rebellion, and then punishment, and repentance, and then redemption is a cycle that gets repeated throughout the book, but we can see it demonstrated in chapter 6, 1 through 11, um, nice and clearly, and that will bring us right up to Gideon. Um, If you read the book of Judges, before and after the story of Gideon, you'll see this cycle gets repeated several times, but it's not so much a circular cycle. It's not the same every time, but it's more of a a downward spiral, getting worse and worse until you get... um, the first judge is fairly good, but then by Gideon you start to see some flaws in the men being used by God. And then if you continue reading all the way to the end, you see it gets worse and worse up right up till the final chapters. Um, so let's turn to Judges chapter 6, verse 1. So then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. That would be the first part of the cycle, the rebellion. Nah. Uh, So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, also Amalekites, and the people of the east would come up against them. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and come in as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. This is the second part of the cycle, the God's punishment on them. Um, And then from verse 6 onwards to 10, And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And it came to pass, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, that the lord sent a prophet to the children of israel who said to them thus says the lord god of israel i bring you up i b- sorry i brought you up from egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage and i delivered you out of the hand of the egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land also i said to you i am the lord your god do not fear the gods of the amorites in whose land you dwell but you have not obeyed my voice so then this would be the third part of the cycle there repentance, except at this point they aren't really repenting. God has had to send a prophet to remind them that they need to repent. And in verse 11 we see, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which is in Ophrah, which belongs to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. So then this would be the, the fourth part of the cycle. Um, the redemption, God raises up a judge to deliver them from their oppressors. And the majority of the book of Judges falls under this category of redemption. Not there's not too many details r- that are given about Israel's rebellion or their punishment or their repentance. The focus of the book seems to be on the power and the mercy of God rather than the sinfulness of the nation, although that is mentioned. Uh, clearly, and it's just not the central focus. So we can see that Israel experiences extreme hardship. and um, God has delivered them into the hand of Midian, and for the last seven years, every time that they've planted, the Midianites come um, and destroy their crops and the produce of the earth, and they leave nothing behind, no food for the people or the livestock. So by this point, they're surely poor and hungry, and they're crying out to God because of the Midianites. Matthew Henry points out in his commentary that the Lord first sends a prophet to reprove the Israelites and bring them to repentance. And I think I would agree with him. The way it's worded and based on the Lord's response, um, it would seem that Israel's heart wasn't right. They were crying out because of the Midianites and their circumstances, but there isn't a mention that they repented of their sin or recognized that they had put themselves in this predicament. They had disobeyed God, they had worshipped idols, and God had done what was just, by punishing them, and they should have known that, they had agreed to the covenant at Shechem. Um, but notice the love of God even in this. He treats Israel as his children. Even when they worship idols and they disobey so many of his commands, he draws them back to himself. Um, as a contrast, if you look at the Midianites, God did never discipline the Midianites. He allowed them conti- to continue in their sin and idol worship. And because they were not his, er, he did this because they were not his chosen people. He allowed them to continue in their sin, or sorry, his allowing them to continue in their sins is actually an act of judgment against them. Hebrews chapter twelve, five through eight says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, the Lord deals with you as with sons, but for the son, sorry, for what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then are you illi- then you are illegitimate and not sons? I think it's worth mentioning here that while when Israel's circumstances changed for the worse, God had not changed. He, um, in delivering Israel into the hand of Midian for seven, seven years, God was not any less faithful to his promises. He was not less good. He had not become less merciful. He had not become less just. He was not less loving, and he had not stopped being sovereign. Um, Israel had broken the covenant they made with God and be in being faithful, good, loving, merciful, just, and in a display of his sovereignty, God delivered them into the hand of the Midianites to punish them for their idolatry and to drive them back into a right relationship with him. He sent, having sent a prophet to Israel, Reminding them of their disobedience and the reason for the punishment, God sends the angel of the Lord to uh, to Ophrah to speak with Gideon. The angel says to Gideon, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And the first words we hear from Gideon are him questioning both of those. Gideon said to him, uh, in verse 13, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, O oh my Lord, if I can save, sorry, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Then he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign thats that it is you who talk with me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come back to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket, and he put the broth in a pot, and he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. The angel of the Lord said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. And fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear, you shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it is still an Ophrah of the Abizrites. Gideon was told, so just to go over this section, Gideon was told to go in this might of his and save Israel. And I believe he rightly assesses his own ability to save Israel. But I believe Gideon missed the point here. God is not telling him that he's supposed to go defeat Midianites out of his own strength but rather, the Lord enables those whom he calls to do what he has called them to. God is going to give the victory to to Gideon in going to defeat... Sorry. God is going to give the victory to Gideon, and by his aid, Gideon will defeat the Midianites as one man. In spite of these promises, even the best man is a man at best. Gideon, who is remembered in Hebrews chapter 11, which is very frequently called the faith chapter, there's a Um, kind of a hall of fame of faithful people throughout the Bible. Um, Gideon's remembered there, but he doubts God and he asks for a sign. He's willing to obey God, but he desires a sign, um, which I can understand revelation from God was very rare, and he wanted full assurance that this was in fact from God. And God gave Gideon the sign that he wanted. And when he did that, uh, Gideon apparently thought he was talking with a prophet so far or something, because in verse twenty two after the angel of the Lord departed, Gideon becomes afraid. Um, there's two schools of thoughts uh, of thought on the identity of this angel. Um, some believe that it is some believe it to be what is referred to as a christophany, which is a pre-incarnation appearance of Christ while others believe it's an angelophany, which just would mean that it's an appearance of an angel. From what I understand, um, of those, of um, of what Christophanies, those who believe in them in the Old Testament believe that when the Bible is referring to the angel of the Lord, it means Christ. Uh, those who disagree believe that it's just a normal angel. I don't understand that topic well enough to confidently stand before you and tell you which it is, Um From what I did look into it, there's scripture and there's um, sound men on both sides. But I don't know um, enough, and I haven't had the time to study it enough to tell you for certain which way I believe it is. Um, But from what I do understand, it doesn't affect the meaning of the text, and it doesn't change anything that my message hinges on. So I'll leave that with each of you to look into further if you so desire. And if somebody has studied it or does study it and believes I need to correct something I've said, um, please talk with me afterwards. So in verse 25, Now it came to pass that same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of this rock in th- the proper arrangement and take the second bull and offer sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. And then when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was, an al- there was the altar of Baal torn down and the wooden image that was beside it was cut down And the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built. So they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die, because he he has torn down the altar of Baal, and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself, because his altar has been torn down. Therefore, on that day, he called him Jerubbaal, saying, Let Baal plead against him, because he has torn down his altar. Uh, the Lord's instructions here to Gideon are extremely similar to the instructions given to Israel in um, when they were told how to deal with the Canaanites before they crossed over the Jordan. They were to tear down the altars to burn their wooden idols. Um, so then Gideon does it during the night because of his fear, which um, in this case was likely a very a wise precaution because of the re- reaction of the men of the city. If the first thing wa- they wanted to do was kill him for it, it probably wasn't a bad idea to do it at a time when they weren't there to kill him while he was doing it. Um, the Lord is going to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Midianites, but Israel has been worshipping idols for at least seven years. Um, Leviticus four thirteen and 14 say that there must be an offering for sin once the congregation knows that they have sinned. It says, Now if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done something against the commandments of the Lord in anything which should not be done and are guilty, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a young bull for the sin and bring it before the tabernacle of meeting. The offering for the na- for a nation is a bull, which is what God commanded Gideon to offer. After the bull has been offered f- for the sins of the nation, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Gideon and he gathers an army. Um, yeah. So in verse, i keeping on reading in verse 33, um, Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites, the people of the east, gathered together, and they crossed over and encamped, encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Then he blew his trumpet, and the Abizrites gathered behind him. And he sent messengers through all Manasseh, who also gathered behind him. And he also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet th- them. And then we get into the part that is pretty well known, the sign of the the fleece. So Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, Look, I shall put a fleece of the wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When When he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the free on the fleece, but on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. So here again, Gideon, a man of faith, asks for a sign, and God gives it to him. <coughs> Gideon knows and acknowledges that his faith is weak. Um... He d- he acknowledges this by asking that the Lord not be angry with him for asking for another sign, um, and this is a place in the Bible where it's important to remember that this is a, a historical narrative. Not everything is commanded. The sign of the fleece is not a recommendation. Um, Gideon did it, and it's recorded in the Bible, but it's not what we're told to do. Asking for signs is sho- asking for signs shows a weak faith, and God does not promise us anywhere, to my knowledge, that if we ask for signs, he will surely give them. Jesus, actually in response to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, asking for a sign, he said, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. So, please do not let your takeaway from the story of Gideon be, I should put out a fleece the next time I'm faced with a tough decision. Gideon asked the Lord for forgiveness while doing it, and it's an error to avoid, not something to repeat. In chapter seven, let me just <coughs> uh. in chapter seven we keep reading. It says, Then Jeroboam, Jerobo- that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod, Herod so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Moray in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And twenty-two thousand of the people returned, and ten thousand remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them there for you or I will test them for you there. Then it will be that uh, of whom I say to you, the one shall, um, sorry, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And whomever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, th- the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set him apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who lapped, lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, By the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you, and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. So the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hand, hands, and he sent them o- sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and retained those three hundred men. Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. The Lord knew that if there w- if there a large army of Israelites was used to defeat the Midianites, Israel would be very tempted to claim the glory for themselves. So he whittles it down from 32,000 men down to 10,000 men down to 300 men. And these 300 men's qualifications consisted of they drank water a certain way. If you were told that you were going to lead 300 men against an army that was too big to number, you probably would want the best men you could have if that's all you had available. I know I would. But Gideon didn't choose. God told him who he'd be going into battle with, and Gideon just went from the leader of 32,000 men to 300. So if there ever was a time for that his faith was tried, this would be it. And the Lord again graciously gives Gideon reassurance, but this time uh, without him asking. And that's in verse 9 and onward. It happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pira, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. And when he went from with Pira, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp, then he went down with Pira. Uh, now the Midianites and the Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number, as the sands of the seashore in multitude. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I have had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned, and the tent collapsed. Then his companion said to him, this is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel, into his hand God delivered Midian and the whole camp and so it was when Gideon heard them when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped and he c- so, so he returned to the camp of Israel and said, "Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. Notice the providence of God in this." There's essentially a valley filled with men and camels, and there's so many that they can't be counted, and they get compared to the sands of the seashore. And then, of all the parts of the camp that Gideon could have gone to, and of all the men who could have been there on that spot, and of all the possible dreams this guy could have had, because dreams are fickle things, um, he has exactly the right dream at the right time, and he decides right when Gideon gets there to share his dream with his companion. And his companion has the interpretation of the dream, and he says with confidence, "This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon." He's confident that that's the only possible outcome of this dream, which I don't know how to interpret dreams, but to me it seems like a stretch. Um, but just, you know, but God is sovereign even over over the Midianites and their dreams and <laughs> over them. And then also, notice that it was this Midianite's dream that God used to strengthen Gideon's arms to go down to the camp. He's tried, or he has three times asked for signs, and now, finally, finding out finding out a dream that a man of Gideon had, and hearing the interpretation that his companion gave him. And Gideon has the confidence, and that is um, the way it's worded. Uh, God has used it to strengthen his arms, Um now at last, he's, he's ready to go. And he goes right away. In verse 16, we see that he then he divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put a trumpet in every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. Watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you also shall... You also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the three hundred men who were with him came to the outposts of the camp at the be- beginning of the middle watch, just as they had posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew their trumpets and broke their pitchers. Blo- broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing, and they cried, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp, and the whole camp ran and cried out and fled. When the three hundred blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his, against his companion throughout the whole camp, and the army fled to Beth Acacia, toward Zera, Zerera, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah by Tabith. And the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh, and pursued the Midianites. Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites, and seize from them the watering places as far as Beth, Berah and the Jordan. Then all the men of e- Ephraim, Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Beth, Bera and the Jordan. And they captured the two princes, princes of Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. So Gideon is finally free of his doubts and finally fully convinced of what the Lord wants him to do and that it is the Lord who wants him to do it. And he does it admirably. He goes against an enemy that can't be numbered with an army of 300 men. And they've got an object in either hand which leaves them all quite vulnerable if a stray Midianite would rush them with a sword. And Gideon surely was a man of faith and a brave one at that to do this. The Lord set every man's sword against his companion in the dark, and their in their panic to escape the midianite panic to escape the Midianites ran and cut down anyone who was in their way, um, which much to their own downfall was only their own companions, so they destroyed themselves from the inside. Then in chapter eight. We read, Now the the men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? And they reprimanded him sharply. So he said to them, What have I done now in comparison to you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abizar? God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb, and what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. I just want to observe here: the Lord was certainly right to only send 300 men. Um, we can see in the reaction from the men of Ephraim that they're angry. They wanted to be a part of this. They wanted some some of the credit too. Um, and also, the Lord got all the glory from the initial attack, and that's likely what most w- that sorry, and that's most likely what wiped out most of the Midianites. Gideon's response to the men of Ephraim is a fair question: what had he done in comparison to them? All he had done is blow a trumpet and smash, um, smash a pot. And while, on the and on the other hand, Ephraim had to helped to defeat the rem- remnant of the army and killed the princes of Midian. So from here, I'm going to jump to verse 22. Um, it's just, it's more details of the battle and. Um yeah, just for the sake of time and hopefully to for everyone's attention spans, it'll make it a little bit easier to, <laughs> to focus. Um, so then in verse 22, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you that each of you would give me the earring from his plunder, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So they answered, We will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw into it the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested were, was one thousand seven hundred shekels of gold, beside the crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the chains that were around their camels' necks. And Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city, Ophrah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his house. Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel, so that they lifted their heads no more. And the country was quiet for forty years in the days of Gideon. Then Jerobel, that's Gideon, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had seventy sons who were, of his, w- who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, whose name he called Abimelech. Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, in Ophrah of the Abizrites. So it was, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the the balls and made Baal-Bareth their god. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their god, who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side, Nor did they show kindness to the house of Jeroboam, Gideon, in accordance with the good he had done for Israel. And here, right at the end, we see that um, the cycle starting over again. Israel is being disobedient once again. So Gideon denied Israel's request to make him king, but then he asks for a share of the plunder, much like a king. And then he makes an ephod, which is a breastplate, usually only worn by priests and for whatever his original intentions were with it, it became a snare to him and his family and to all of Israel. They again went astray and worshipped the Baals. Then Gideon had a son with his concubine and named him Abimelech, which is translated as, My father a king. So Gideon's kind of an interesting case. He's... um He's humble, but but also he doesn't want to be king, but he sort of wants to be king. He names his son, my father, a king, but he says he doesn't want to be the king. He asks for a share of the plunder, like a king, but he doesn't want want the crown. Um, Gideon and the other judges are a little bit interesting like that. So now that we've read through the story, how is it supposed to affect our life? Um, There's several things... Of note in here um, that we can take away and apply Um, for the unbeliever it depends a little bit if you're not a Christian I would point you to the judgment of God on the Midianites and I would say look at that a little bit they were enemies of God and suddenly when it pleased God he brought the wages of their sin upon them nowhere are we promised a certain number of years or even another breath so please see the seriousness of your situation in Scripture there are two categories of people those who have been reconciled to God and those who have not been. <coughs> Realize that your own righteousness will not Sorry <coughs> Realize that your own righteousness will not get you anywhere with God. It would be like a criminal on trial for murder expecting the times that he'd had good manners or was polite um, to somehow convince the judge to let him go. You have sinned against the holy God, and there's only one way to salvation, and that is to be born again to repent of your sin and to turn from it and ask God to forgive you for it, and then to believe and trust in Christ's work, works and in them alone for your righteousness. <coughs> like the criminal in the courtroom, there's nothing you've done or can do that will change the ruling of the judge, but if someone else is punished on your behalf or someone else pays the fine, um, just, justice can be satisfied. Romans 8.8 says that, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that we, w- while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Look at the Midianites. For seven years they persecuted the Israelites and lived like conquerors. Then in one night God struck them down. You may have another 80 years. You may not make it to tomorrow, but either way you will stand before God one day and give an account. I plead with you, um, if you are not born again, repent today. Don't put it off. It's not something that is worth waiting for. There's no good reason to wait for it. But for believers, um, there's encouragement in in the story of Gideon. Because why would God use somebody like Gideon? He's got weaknesses, he's got shortcomings, and he falls short in areas. Um, but the reason for that is it's for his glory. The Lord uses us in spite of our weaknesses, and because we have weaknesses, sorry, he uses us in spite of our weaknesses, and because we have weaknesses, he receives the greater glory for doing it. Our weaknesses give opportunity for him to put his attributes on display. When the Lord uses Gideon and only 300 men to, defea- to deliver Israel from Midian, you see the power of God, that in with 300 men he can defeat this massive army. When he gives Gideon the signs that he asks for and orchestrates the Midian's Midianite man's dream to, give Gide- to bolster Gideon's weak faith, God shows his patience and his love (coughs) and his grace with Gideon in that when we doubt and when we fall short, that God doesn't just abandon us to our weakness. When somebody, or as an example, when someone uses a camera and a computer and a printer to make a beautiful photo to hang on the wall, um, very often most people won't be very impressed by the person who did it they've got good equipment and that's pretty much what we would expect if you have a good camera and a good printer that um that will be the result but now if somebody takes a paintbrush and paints the same photograph and he creates a painting that captures everything that the camera did and does it as well or better then um sorry then you you don't look at that painting and think man if i had a paintbrush i could do that too um You look at the painting and you say, man, this person knows what they're doing. The person behind it has used this instrument that isn't perfect. It doesn't do the job for them. It has its shortcomings, and they can do something amazing with it. And in the same way, if God uses a perfect person to do his will, we would be tempted to give some of the credit to the person that was used. But when God uses an imperfect person like me or you or Gideon, you look at what he's done and you see how great of a God he is because we know that apart from him our best efforts would come nowhere close to what he can do with us. We glorify his name because he has saved sinners, and now, former enemies of God, are adopted children. We bear the fruits of the Spirit instead of the works of the flesh. Um, in Second Corinthians 4, 7-9, through nine, he says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power of may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. This verse, it's talking about this treasure that we have in earthen vessels, and in the context, it's talking about the gospel and us being those earthen vessels, just clay pots that weren't worth much, were very common, and if it broke, well, oh, well, there's like 10 more of them. Um, But the purpose for using such uh, a lowly thing for such an amazing treasure like the gospel. It is so that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. It's so that God gets the glory when we do th- amazing things. When sinful people do great things, you look at them and you think, man, what a great God that he was able to use such a person to do that. And we do the same thing when we look at Gideon. Um, Gideon, and his Gideon and his 300 would have been easily wiped out had God not been on their side. And conversely, um, Because God was not with the Midianites, they didn't stand a chance against Gideon and his 300 because God was on Gideon's side. And all that Gideon and and his men were armed with was torches and jars and trumpets. Um, I'm sure that was an embarrassing story to tell everybody else if there were any survivors. The victory wasn't won because Gideon and his men were amazing fighters or great trumpet players. Not one of them charged into the Midian- Midianite camp with a sword in hand. They blew trumpets and broke jars and they yelled. God struck Midian. God obviously deserves the glory from this victory. But what would have happened if God had used an army of Israelites that was equal to the Midianites? Then Israel and us would be very likely to try to take some of the credit for ourselves, even though, apart from God, we can't. We cannot do it. We can't do anything. Um. But, so he, he uses the small, small number of people for his glory um, and to demonstrate his power. And then, in looking over what we've read today, I believe there is a warning for the believer as well and encouragement. Um, we should not be seeking for, for signs, we should not be seeking signs from God. Um, and we don't need to. It only demonstrates the weakness of our faith and it's condemned by Christ as I've already mentioned instead let us be like the man that is described in mark 9 22 through 24 his son is demon possessed and he says to Jesus if you can do anything have compassion on us and help him Jesus said to him if you can believe all things are possible to him who believes and immediately the father of the child cries out and said with tears Lord I believe help my unbelief Gideon in his defense, is not very far off of this when he asks for a sign and then for forgiveness, because he, he wants help for his unbelief. Um, I think the issue with Gideon, though, is ask thinking that a sign will fix his unbelief. And here I would like to exhort you, if you doubt, when you doubt, when your faith wavers, ask God to help your unbelief, then read his word. Look to God and not to yourself or to signs. Romans 7, 18 says for I know that in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells for to will is present with me but to perform what is good I do not find looking to ourselves for strength or looking at ourselves for a reason to have faith doesn't make much sense I I heard a quote once I think it was from Martin Luther and it went something like this if I look to myself I cannot see how I will be saved but if I look at Christ I do not know how I can be lost So let's look to Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. For comfort when our faith falters, he is recorded in these pages of the Bible, his faithfulness, hundreds of times. He has given us many promises to claim. Read through the Psalms. Many tell the story of a man, David, who is struggling in one way or another, or there's other people, but but he finds his comfort in the Lord and in his word. Read of God's power and his mercy in choosing Abraham from a pagan land, bringing him out there, out of there and making him and his descendants into a mighty nation. Read Romans 1-8. through eight. It will leave you encouraged not to trust in yourself for anything that you have done, but rather to rest in knowing that God is faithful and if he has saved you, he you are saved indeed. How often do we lack faith? How often do we look at our own strength and at our own faith, and then doubt God. How often do we blame God for our problems? How often do we do what Gideon did in chapter six, verse thirteen? He says, O oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then why then has this all happened to us? But now the Lord has forsaken us, skipping ahead a bit, but now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. Gideon looked at the circumstances he found himself and the nation of Israel in, and said based on his own standard, because things weren't going well, God has abandoned us. It's not definitely, he's ignoring the fact that this is a just reaction to their disobedience. God doesn't abandon his children. If you're going through hard times, which at one point or another we likely all will, and I know some of us or people we know are right now going through hard times, let us not decide based on how we think our life I- should be going to accuse God of abandoning us. The very circumstances which we despise um, show us our need for God right now, and whether we've forgotten our need for him and have wandered, and or whether we've never known him, or if we know him and trust him and are now being shown that as much as we thought we needed God, we need him far more than we can than we had imagined. Let's not do what Adam did in the garden when he was confronted with his sin. He points to the woman and says to God, the woman you gave me, saying that not only it's not his own fault, but also, in a way, pointing back to God, saying, you gave me this woman. This is your fault that I did this. Let's remember the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. But First off, that doesn't mean that we'll be all living rich in fancy houses and driving nice cars or whatever. That may happen, but that's not what's being promised here. It's saying all things work together for good to those who love God. And good here um, doesn't mean material wealth. It does mean absolutely but... The word all here, all things, means absolutely all things. Whether pleasant or unpleasant, God's hand is in it. And he is using our circumstances to draw us to him and to draw those sheep that are lost to him and conform us more and more to the image of Christ. So therefore, because we know the God who has given us our lot in life, we know that he is loving, that he is kind and merciful and good, and he is never changing, he is faithful, because we know him, let us praise him and thank him for all that we've been given. This life is but a vapor, and he has given, to it, all given it all to us for our good, whether it be a trying time or it, w- it be uh, something else. Let's also remember the words of Joseph in Genesis 50-20. I'll read from f- <laughs> verse 14. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, Perhaps Joseph will hate us, And may actually repay us for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, do not be afraid for I am in the place for am I in the place of God but as for you you meant evil against me but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive First off Joseph doesn't he's telling them asking them am I in the place of God it's not for him to execute justice uh, or final justice but the point I want to make here is he says but as for you you meant evil against me his brothers sinfully meant evil against him but he says here god meant it for good god does not sin nor is he the author of sin yet in his sovereignty in his control of all things he will use sin sinlessly to accomplish his purposes if you are going through hard times that are a result of someone else's sin or your own sin, know that God is in control and that this is being used for your good. It says, all things work together for good, even the sin of others. And be comforted, knowing that God is in control, there's nothing that happens that he is unaware of, and there's never anything that comes to pass that he has not ordained. If you love God, All things are working for your good. And the last thing I wanted to look at is, is Gideon Gideon an example that points us to Christ? On the road to Emmaus, Christ told the disciples that all of the Old Testament testified of him. How does the story of Gideon do that? Because Gideon's a bit of a mixed bag as far as examples go. He does lead 300 men against an army that's without number. He is obedient and faithful. He refuses to be Israel's king for the right reasons. He does what is right. He refuses to be their king, and he says instead to them that the Lord will rule over you, and he believes God's word. But at the same time, he doubts God, repeatedly asks for signs. He asks for a portion of each man's plunder, much like a king. And he makes an ephod, which is a chest plate um, typically worn by priests, at one point the, the phrase to, to wear an ephod was pretty much the same thing as saying somebody was going to be a priest. Um, but he, he made this ephod and whatever his motivations were for it, whether they were pure or otherwise, um, I'd rather think that they were mm, that they were good. But regardless of that, him and his household and the nation of Israel were led astray by it. And then later in life he names his son my father a king. So we can't, simply say that Gideon was a good example. I mean, he was at times, but he also wasn't. He certainly doesn't come across as the traditional type or shadow of Christ in the Old Testament. Um, thinking of Moses, there's, to my knowledge, only a few times and right at the start of his ministry where he uh, where he disobeyed God blatantly. Um, or if you look at Joshua, he was a faithful man, he was brave. Or Caleb, well, I don't know if Caleb was a type, but... I believe when we read Judges, we see the faults and the shortcomings of Israel and the Judges, and it's not unlike looking into a mirror. The book of Judges shows us the shortcomings of the Judges the same way that when Nathan told King David the story of the rich man who had sinned, um, it reveals our shortcomings to us by letting us look at another who falls short in the same way. Because for some reason... It is so much easier to look at somebody else and see the faults. And then, by showing us our shortcomings, our faults, our sin, and our need for grace, we see our need for a Savior that much clearer. I believe that is the way that judges points us to Christ, and that's how Gideon points us back to Christ. It shows us where we also fall short, and that it shows us better and more how much we need Christ. He is the only good and perfect judge who can save us. So that I believe that would be all that I've got for you this morning. So let's close in prayer. Lord, I know that you say in your I know that you say your word will not return void. And I pray that in spite of me and my weakness, my inexperience, that your word has blessed your people this morning. I pray that you would humble us by it and change us by it. More and more into the image of Christ each day, and Lord give us give us a love for your word and help us to find comfort there. I pray this in your name, Amen.